Howdy. Okay, so we do have a couple lags in the room. I was going to see how many would follow. Uh, for those who don't know me or haven't gotten the, I haven't gotten the blessing of meeting yet, I'm Brad Hendrickson. I'm here with the Aggies for Christ. Uh, traditionally, this is my home church. This is where I grew up, I think, since uh, I was three. And so it's a real big blessing for me to come back here and get to speak a little bit today. Uh, but real quickly, if y'all would uh, pray with me real fast. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for today, so much for this ability to be able to uh, to gather in your name, to stand on holy ground uh, in your presence and to always be in your presence. God, please uh, please be with me as I uh, deliver your message. May it be your words that uh, that speak through me and that, in fact, I'm just only uh, just standing here and this, uh, this process is all you. And uh, the church wouldn't mind praying for me for a second. Jesus' name, amen. So uh, I'm not here to convert Christians or to light the church on fire or to do anything spectacular. My whole goal for the next, hopefully not 40 minutes, is to try to see if I can give my mom a heart attack. (laughs) I was thinking I was going to slouch a little, undo my shirt tail, but uh, I was going to see if I could try to scare a little bit. So... If anybody doesn't recognize this map, this is the map of the Roman Empire, one of the most mightiest forces and empires to ever exist. They uh, stretched all the way from down to Egypt, all the way up to Britain and almost into Scotland, but us good old Scots held them back. So if y'all don't know, I'm Scottish, so I'm pretty proud. Uh, All right. And then, but the Romans, they gave us such great things. They uh, made great advances. They had... uh, they created military tactics, and they, you have the next slide for me? There we go. They created military tactics, and they, they, you know, they took over the world, and they also gave us columns. Columns, great columns, great, uh, next one. There we go. Columns, they gave us columns, great architectural things. We see them everywhere, especially in our government buildings. It's a little hint. They also gave us republics, you know, we're, we're, uh, representing the people. You know, they gave us republics and senates and senators so maybe the romans didn't have it all but they came close you know there are also a lot of other great empires out there there were the you know the japanese empire they had their emperor and the the chinese empire they had uh their you know their emperor and mulan saved him and (laughs) and the ottoman empire they really love furniture Oh, man. Uh, also, there was the Egyptian Empire, which is where we're going to really be heading today for a little while. The Egyptian Empire, they had their, their chariots. They were very famous for their, their, their chariots. That's on the next slide, by the way. They had their chariots, and also they came up with the pyramid, the triangle, a very phenomenal shape. But I also believe what not a lot of people know is I think the Egyptians were the first to come up with life insurance. <laughs> I'm kind of thinking a little bit like, you know, the AARP commercials. You got one pharaoh going up to the next pharaohs. You know, man, I was really concerned about, you know, you know what my life was going to be like, what would happen to my family after I died. So I got a Giza life insurance, and I started working on my pyramid when I was 12. <laughs> that way my family was secure. And also with their rollaway plan, if you happen to do come back, they have uh, people to come tell your friends and family as soon as they can. That was a Jesus joke, by the way. So we're going to go ahead, uh, we're going to actually tackle the whole Bible today. You think I'm crazy, but I'm not. So if we start all the way at the beginning of the Bible, we have Adam and Eve. They're living in the Garden of Eden, 
with God and they, they're, they're happy. The world is great. Animals and humanity and God are all living in perfect harmony. But unfortunately, uh, we kind of slip up. Uh, Eve takes the apple and eats it, learns in the knowledge of good and evil. And unfortunately, God has to kick them out of the garden. They aren't in perfect harmony with him anymore. So unfortunately, to be just, unfortunately, he has to, to remove them from his presence. And then from there, it goes really downhill. Uh, after that, uh, there's a great flood. Only eight people survive. And then from then, it continues to Abraham. And Abraham it makes a covenant with God. And eventually, he has his descendants. And there are 12 of them. It's a really mystical number right there, 12. And we see his 12 descendants go on and find their way to the Egyptian empire. They find their way over there because there's famine in their land and they can't survive there. So they go to the Pharaoh and they, they, they plead for their, you know, for a little bit of sanctuary. And that's where they wind up. So if you start in Exodus 1, uh, let's see if I can find my bookmark. Ciao. There it goes. Uh, for a while, the descendants, the first 12 brothers have, are, have already died, and then their descendants are now inhabiting Egypt. But unfortunately, there's a small problem. They keep multiplying. They follow God's commandment, and they were fruitful. They continued to have children in generation after generation. And in verse 6, now Joseph and all of his brothers and all that generation died. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. But they, they multiplied greatly, increased in number, and because, so, because they were so numerous that the land was filled with them. Which was kind of an issue. It's a little bit of population control. The Israelites are now beginning to outgrow the Egyptian population. So the next pharaoh has to decide what he wants to do. He says, then a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing... Joseph meant nothing to this new pharaoh. He wasn't part of that deal, his, whoever, if it was his dad or just the guy that preceded him. He didn't honor that uh, agreement that he had with the Israelites. And he was noticing that his kingdom was beginning to fall into their hands. So he said, look, he said to his people, the Israelites, look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, uh, we must deal shrewdly with them, and they will become even, or they will become more numerous, and war will break out, and will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. He was worried since they weren't honoring the agreement that the Israelites and the Egyptians were beginning to clash a little bit. Uh, you know, it's a little bit like Ingram and Kerrville. We're getting too close. You know, so, so we're, you know, rubbing shoulders. It's you know, things aren't harmonious, and he's worried that if a, an enemy of Egypt comes in and attacks that the Israelites are going to jump ship and say, well, you know, we don't like you Egyptians, and they're coming in, and we're going to, we're going to stick up with them, and we're going to take over. He was afraid of that because they were too numerous. They would just overrun him in his own cities. So continuing on in verse 11, it says, So they put slave masters over them and oppressed them with forced labor, and they built uh, Fithom. I didn't practice that one. And uh, Ramus to uh, and store cities for the Pharaoh. But more than, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread Israelites, and they worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor and brick and mortar and all kinds of work in the fields. And all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. So the Egyptians completely took over the Israelites. They stormed in probably one night, put slave masters over them, and began to work them for the next 430 years. To give you a grasp of how much time that is, that goes all the way back to Jamestown from our current date. 
So all of American history, replace that with slave ownership over us. So, so your parents, all the way back to, uh, you know, imagine you know, Abraham Lincoln, uh, uh, George Washington, these other people we really wouldn't know about because they would just been another average slave doing the regular, probably 12-hour day, wake up, go make some bricks all day long, and then go to sleep. See, that was their pattern. The Israelites' pattern after this point was they would wake up in the morning, they would walk out to their fields or out into the hot sun with the, you know, they didn't have sunscreen back then, so sun burning all the time. Awful, awful. And so they would just brick after brick after brick after brick after brick after brick, day in, day out, day in, day out. That's all they knew. And slowly by slowly, over those 430 years, 430 years of this, their humanity was stripped away from them. Day after day after day of day of slave ownership and oppression and probably they would you know, kill someone to make an example of them. Their life was terrible. The Israelites' life there in the Egyptian empire was awful. And like I said earlier, the Egyptians were famous for their chariots. So eventually the chariot to the Israelites became this terrible symbol of oppression because all the slave masters, that's how they would get around. They would ride their chariot from one place to the next and, you know, crack their whips, make more bricks, work faster, get this done, don't slow down, don't complain. You don't get to. You're our slaves. Again and again, for 430 years, their humanity is stripped away. All but one thing seemed to remain. The one simple instinct that we continued to hold on to from the Garden of Eden, the Egyptian, the Egyptian or not the Egyptians, the Israelites, continued to pray to God. And cry out, God of Abraham, we know you exist. Joseph and his brothers and Jacob, they all knew you. Where are you? Please come and save us. They continued to cry and continue to cry. And eventually, God answers his prayer. He sends Moses. Moses was actually uh, Israelite himself, but he made it into, uh, to the uh, Egyptian government. And he ran away, found the burning bush. And God sends him back to free his people. He sends him back. Moses brings his people out from Israel. And during this time of you bringing them out of Israel, they at one point have to cross the Red Sea. I think you can kind of see it on there over all the way, kind of in between uh, Sinai and lower Egypt, which is in the north. They try to trick their enemies, you know, lower Egypt's in the north, in case you tried to invade. Uh, so he crosses the Red Sea, and while they're being, cha- they're, they're being chased by the Israelites, or the Egyptians, ugh, Egyptians are really confusion. So the uh, Egyptians are chasing them in their chariots. That sign of oppression is returning back to the Israelites. They can see them at their back, and they have to cross the Red Sea. And so God allows Moses to spread it open, and they pass through safely. And as the Egyptians come in, we know the Red Sea collapses and and kills a lot of them. Uh, Probably a few survive, but a lot of them die in that moment. And to that moment, the Israelites were free. The symbol of oppression, the chariots had been obliterated in front of them by the power of God. The power of God destroyed that oppressive sign. So in that mind, they began to become free. They started becoming human again. At Mount Sinai, God gives them their first uh, set of rules, the Ten Commandments, to continue on this path of you know, revival. They, they don't know anymore what they are supposed to be. All they knew for 430 years was slavery and oppression. So God gives them these Ten Commandments and Leviticus to teach them how to be to human again, how to how to live in God's way, and to uh, to be uh, human again, to live in harmonious uh, lives with God. 
And to continue on with the Israelite kingdom continues to grow. They make mistakes and they stumble like we all do as children. And they eventually come up to David. King David nails it. His whole entire life, except for one little slip-up, he nails the per- one of the greatest relationships with God we've ever known. And the kingdom follows that. If your king was doing well, your kingdom was doing well. Your, your king was your representative. And so the kingdom it's, itself was flourishing. And so then he has his son, Solomon. So Solomon is wise. He talked to God and he gained wisdom. He gained great wisdom. And he used that wisdom and he began to accumulate things. He actually... At one point, if you is that he had an annual income of 66 talents of gold, which is 25 tons of gold per year. This is not from like pulling off, you know, the merchants. You know, they would have to send in their taxes and whatnot. He was gaining that much gold, and then, what does it say? And then he had a fleet of trade ships. See, Israel was placed right in the Mediterranean Sea, so they could trade with all these people, and they were bringing in ivory and silver and gold and precious gems from everywhere. Israel is building, it's building, and it's building. And he had, he, him, then himself, he gets a golden ivory throne, a magnificent throne for himself to sit in. And something changes a little bit. He gets 1,400 chariots. There's something specific about these chariots. They came from Egypt. Solomon had begun to grow so powerful that he got started pulling off uh, weapons from Egypt. And then he began to trade with other nations nearby. All these chariots that he had begun to accumulate from Egypt, this oppressing government that was they were used to, he's now taking that and starting to spread that amongst nations around him. Actually, Solomon had now become a an arms dealer. Solomon, the great wise Solomon, the son of David who was after God's own heart, was beginning to sell weapons and to build military cities and storerooms. And then he gained some Egyptian wives and other wives from nearby. He wasn't having just one. He started accumulating a harem. And then finally he starts accumulating slaves from every nation that he began to defeat. So Solomon had totally forgotten his past. Solomon had created the empire of Jerusalem and the Israelite kingdom. He began to oppress slaves and other nations. He began to make weapons and to accumulate wealth and wives. He totally missed the point of everything that God had set up to them. He'd worked so hard and he got so stuck into this worldly power that God eventually has to plead with him to stop or things are going to become irreparable. You're going to screw this all up. You've been learning so well. I got you from Egypt and Mount Sinai. You did so well. What are you doing? Solomon stopped, but he continued. And through all that wisdom, he learned that you know worldly gains meant nothing and his life was boring and he, he began to hate it all. And then his sons hated the situation they were in. But worldly, the Israel empire continued to grow eventually to a point where it couldn't hold anymore. It collapsed on itself. And then God sent in the Babylonians and the Persians and other nations to go back in. And once again, Israel became slaves. They became to become oppressed again. All because Solomon had to become worldly powerful in all of his wisdom, he had to continue to gain gold and to gain power. 
He totally ruined it and he missed the point of what Israel was supposed to be because at Mount Sinai, God said, Israel, you are going to be my nation of priests and my light into the world. You, Israel, were going to be my message. I was allowing you to grow through David and become a great nation so that everyone would recognize you could see what God has done for these people, how God blesses people, but you got it mixed up. You had to find worldly desires, Solomon. And so this continued on, and they were slaves again and again, and finally until the Roman Empire took over, and now Israel sits under them. And during this time, the prophets had spoken of somebody that was going to come, somebody that was going to change the game, bring Israel back to where it was. And so when this man steps on the scene, he starts beginning to preach and teach a new ministry, a new message. It's really funny because people would go up to him and say, Son of David. Originally, we, next slide. Originally we think this is a, a, an exclamation. Son of David, you. It was like naming him. But in fact, it was something a little bit different. It was Son of David. Question. They would question Jesus when they would go up to him. It's like, Jesus, Son of David. Are you the son of David Solomon that built up another empire and then ruined it for all of us and put us back into oppression? Or are you the son of David that the prophets spoke of? The son of David that would redeem us, that would bring about what we were actually supposed to do. Who are you, Jesus? Who are you? And then Jesus would begin to teach and teach again. And he'd start spreading a little bit different message. He talked about love a lot. Jesus loved to talk about love. He loved to talk about the, the people that are lower than us. See, none of Jesus' teachings ever talked about building up wealth or building up an empire or to talk about how to oppress the person that we disagreed with, the people that offended us. See, he started talking about this message of infinite love, of infinite grace, that we're covered by something, that there's a being out there that doesn't just love the Israelites how they had always thought that they were just God's people and it was God was for them. But he's talking about something completely different. He was talking about how everybody, everybody gets to be loved and everybody should love. See, he actually, his greatest commandment in Matthew, was it chapter 20? 22 verses 37 through 40. He says, one, the first greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart all your soul and all your mind to fully to fully love God. Is this still in? Um, to fully love God. And he said the second thing, the second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. The second greatest thing. The second most important thing. See a Pharisee asked him what was most important. He said, one, love God. Two, love your neighbor, love the people around you. Such a completely different thing than they were, they were ever expecting. They were expecting some guy to come along to rebuild the kingdom, not rebuild the empire of Jerusalem, just rebuild the kingdom of Israel to set them away from, from the Roman Empire. They wanted to be free again. But Jesus is coming along and saying, no, that's not what I'm doing. I'm not setting you free from Rome. You're free from Rome. You, you just in your mind, this government is over you. You're free from Rome. You can do what you like, and that's what I'm telling you. Love God with all your heart, and love your neighbor with all your heart, and as yourself. 
See, a lot of times today we're continuing on this. Uh, it's a brave new world. There are a lot of new thoughts coming out there. We're almost afraid that Christianity might die. There, there are maybe laws that are being passed, nations that are attacking us. But the trick was that God didn't want us to oppress them or to tell them what they can and cannot do. God gave us a simple message. Jesus gave us a really simple commandment. To love them as yourself. Not to oppress them. To go around and put your arms around them and say, I love you even though you stand for everything I'm against. Even though you attack my faith daily. Even though you think I'm a liar. That none of this is real that you think I'm phony and you attack everything I stand for, I'm going to stand here and say, I love you. Why? Why would we love them? Because God, one, He told us to. And two, because He loved us first. See, Jesus doesn't love us. He loves them. Those who are against us, those who are against the, the church or against you personally in your own life, God loved them just as much. God loved Hitler as much as He loved me. And you, God loves Osama bin Laden just as he loves you and he loves me. He loves us all equally. We are all of God. God created all of us. So why do we treat others, other God's creations, less than us? Why do we treat things that God has created less than us because they don't exactly agree with us? See, agreeing with us, it doesn't doesn't matter They're going to live their lives. I'm going to live my life. You're going to live your life. And God is going to love us all the same. So why don't we do the same trick and follow what Jesus said and said to love your neighbor as yourself. Just to love. To love. Just because God loves us. Just because Jesus loves us and loves them. Why is it sometimes so hard? I fall into this too, of running into people that are hard to live with, hard to deal with, that, that make me angry from what they say, not giving me any respect for what I do. It's hard just to love, to put it all aside and say, you know what, since God loves you, I should love you as well. That's just my simple message. I don't think I've got any more slides, right? No, thank you. Generally, as an ag, I would be able very simply just to say thanks and gig them and uh, to walk off the stage. But I would actually like to end this a little bit differently than I usually would. If there's anybody who is seeking the love of God, the love of a community, uh, I believe the elders will be in the back and you can find them and you can speak with them and to see if there's anything we can do for you. Thank you.